your Bibles, come with me to uh, John chapter 7. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses uh, 1 through 24 this morning. So let's pray together and then we'll get right into our study. Father, we thank you for your presence during worship this morning. Um, it satisfies us, Lord, and encourages our heart to uh, pursue you. And we pray, Lord, that as we turn to your word this morning, uh, Lord, that uh, you would speak your truth into our heart in a way that um, just doesn't inform us, but, Lord, in a way that uh, transforms our heart and transforms our life, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at our text this morning, we can... Sure. Um, uh, John chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 24. And that'll just give me a chance to say welcome to those worshiping with us at home. We're in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24 this morning. And so when we look at our text this morning, we can divide it up into uh, five uh, little segments. Uh, if you have a set of notes, you already know what those are. But if you're taking notes with me this morning... You know, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and 6 through 13 and 14 and 16 and 17 and 18 and then 19 through 24. And each one of these sections um, has, a, has embedded in it um, the modeling of Jesus and how he related to the Father. Why is that important? Well, we're certainly going to look at the verses and and explain what each one of those verses refers to. But in each one of these sections, Jesus is modeling what it looks like to have a relationship with God, what it looks like to have a relationship with his Father. As part of our introduction, come with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter expresses it like this, starting with, well, we could start in verse 19 says, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this, for this verse 21, for to this you have been called. And so our calling as believers in Jesus Christ is to be able to walk before the world in a righteous way. And if we suffer and if we incur difficulties because of that, we know this, that God's redemptive purposes are going to work through that difficulty and work through that suffering. Now, I know that that's not going to sell many books it's not going to be the latest conference, you know. Uh, what will the church be in the future? It's, it's, it's not going to be part of that. But this is really our calling, and we find that succinctly expressed in verse 21. For, the, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might do what? so that you might follow in his steps. Now, Jesus calls all of us. We could look at Matthew chapter 16, 24. If you want to follow me, 
pick up your cross and follow after me. And a lot of times we, we read that verse, pick up your cross and follow after me, at, simply through the lens of sin management. And what I mean by sin management is that we simply look at picking up my cross and, and with a focus on sin, and we avoid the rest of our hearts and our lives. Down south, we used to say it like this about sin management. I ain't gonna chew. I ain't gonna smoke. I ain't gonna drink. And I ain't gonna cuss. And I ain't gonna go out. Oh, one last one. I ain't gonna dance. And I ain't gonna go out with girls who do. And so it's all about managing sin. So at the end of the day, we could say, I escaped another day. I'm good. But you know, when we look at what it really looks like to have a transformed heart, what it really looks like to be a Christian that is walking in joy and walking in peace, one must deal with the attitudes of the heart. We have to look at our heart and the secret places of our heart and deal with those things that, well, we just wouldn't explicitly call them sin. We would just say, oh, that's just me. I'm just being myself. And what Jesus models for us in the text here this morning, in five different ways, he models for us how to deal or what attitudes we should deal with so that we can walk in a way that we could experience his joy, his peace. Not only that, that we could experience a transformed life. It's so much more than just dealing or managing the sin in our life. Now, we need to deal with that. But unless we deal with the heart, unless we go beyond the behavior and deal with what is motivating that behavior, we'll always be going through our life with the Lord two steps forward, one step backwards. Take a look at verses 1 through 5. And as we read these verses, ask yourself the question, what is the attitude? What is the, what is the attitude that Jesus is modeling? What is he showing us about his relationship with the Father that if we dealt with that on a heart level, on an attitudinal level, that that would bring forth transformation and spiritual growth in our heart and in our life. Take a look at chapter 7 of John, verses 1 through 5, and we'll, we'll work through it. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, Galilee is about, say, 80 miles from Jerusalem. And why is Jesus in Judea? Well, it's away from the religious power. It's, a, it's away from the political power. It's away from, from the economic power, which is all centered in Israel. It was centered where? It was centered in Jerusalem. And so Jesus removes himself from that. And basically, if we were to go 80 miles from here north, where would that put us? Put us in the White Mountains, wouldn't it? Pretty close. And so Jesus removed himself from the power source, the religious source, and he went up 
say in our in our way of putting, he went up to the where the hillbillies live, up in up in the White Mountains, and he did his work there. And he did it because the religious powers of the day wanted to do what to him? They wanted to kill him. And so now, verse 2, now the Feast of Booths was at hand. And so the Feast of Booths Booths is also called the Feast of what? Feast of Tabernacles. And so what the children of Israel, Israel would do is they would build these little huts and they would build these little huts either on top of their house or off to the side of their house and they'd have slats in them and they would be able to, depending upon what Bible scholar you read, most of Jerusalem would spend October out in these little huts looking up at the stars, remembering God's faithfulness to the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. What's also interesting about the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is that it's six months before the Passover. That's going to be important when we get to another verse. And so Jesus is in Galilee. It's the Feast of Booths. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now we know that Joseph and Simon, we don't know who, you know, we know those two of Jesus' brothers. We also know James and Jude. Jesus had four brothers. We don't really know about his sisters, how many or what their names were. But take note of what the brothers do. They give Jesus some marketing advice. Look, you don't belong up here in the boondocks. You know, if you're going to really make a name for yourself, you need to go down where the action is. You need to go to Jerusalem. You need to go where the political powers are, where the religious powers are, so that, they can, so that you can be seen, Jesus. What's Jesus' reaction to that? We're going to come find out. But what is Jesus doing here in these five verses? And what is the attitude of the heart that he would call us to examine? Well, the attitude of the heart that Jesus has is that he's totally reliant on his Father. He's totally reliant on his Father for his purpose, for his mission. That when his brothers come to him and say, you know, hey, it's, uh, it's, you know, you're just kind of out here in the wilderness and you need to bring yourself in. And they offer him that worldly and ungodly advice. Jesus does what? He simply relies on his father. When we look at our heart, we need to ask ourselves, who are we, who are we relying on? Where is our heart centered on? When we look at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, do what? Acknowledge him. And he will do what? He will direct your paths. Who's in control of your life? Jesus models for us that attitude that relies completely with confidence and courage on the Father. If you want to grow and mature in the Lord, where 
is your hope and where is your confidence? Jesus made the decision with his attitude that I'm going to trust in my father. I'm not going to lean on worldly wisdom or worldly understanding. I'm not going to trust in marketing. I'm simply going to trust that my father is good and that he has a plan for my life. What are the implications for your heart? What are the implications for us as a church? Do we trust in the Lord with all of our heart? Or do we lean on worldly ways of doing church life? Jesus models for us that if we're going to be transformed, if we're going to grow in, into spiritual maturity, our heart needs to be centered on relying on him. The next little section of our text, we could look at verses 6 through 13. Come there with me. It said, Jesus said to them, my time has what? My time has not yet come. Verse 6 says, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. What's Jesus saying here about his brothers? He said, my time hasn't come, but your time is always here. His brothers reflected a worldly attitude, a worldly disposition, a worldly wisdom. And so the world is not going to do what to them? The world's not going to hate them, but Jesus has come announcing, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. He's calling people to a heart relationship to him. And so Jesus shares with his, his brothers, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has what? My time has not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. In the first five verses, we see Jesus relying on the Father. And verses 6 through 13, probably one of the most difficult things in spiritual formation is this, is waiting on the Lord, waiting on his timing, waiting on his direction, putting our plans over here and allowing the Father to lead and to direct and to open doors for us. See, there was a, there was a temptation that was put before Jesus in Luke chapter 4. It's like, I'll give you all the world. Same temptation again, put forth by his brothers. You know, come into this place, come into this place of power and authority, and Jesus does what? He waits on his father. He waits for the proper time. He's waiting for Passover to come. He's waiting so that he could be that sacrificial Lamb of God. Look at verse 14 and 16. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. What Jesus is modeling here is a simple word of humility is that all that he has has been given to him by his Father, that his purpose 
that his mission is from the Father. You know, many of us are in that place where we could self-promote each other. We could self-promote each other. We could self-promote our church. We could, we could do things in a worldly way. And what Jesus is modeling for us is simply this, is that I have received nothing except it's come from my Father. And you see this humility of heart when it comes to his amazing teaching that amazed and captured the people. Jesus didn't decide to, to say, self-promote himself. No, he came to be that suffering servant. Take a look at the next couple of verses, verse 17 and 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, take note of that. If anyone's will, who's responsible? Who's responsible for your will? Is your wife responsible for your will? Is your husband? Jesus gives an amazing, transform, uh, amazing insight into transformation. So Jesus answered them in, in this way. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. What Jesus is speaking here is a disposition to obey, a disposition of the heart attitude that the word of God, as, as we have in the scriptures, as we have in the Bible, as we obey that, as we're faithful to follow that, what happens in our heart, in our life? Our attitude aligns with Jesus. We are following in his steps. And when we love him and obey his commandments, what is the promise that we see out of John? We see that we have his joy and that his joy is fulfilled in our life. Last one, verses 19 through 24. Take a look at it with me. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, crowd answered, you have a demon who is, the demon is trying to, the demon is trying to, is, is seeking to kill you. And, and Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. And I did one work and you want to kill me. What's that one work that Jesus is referring to? It's referring back to John chapter 5, where Jesus is at the pool and the invalid that's been an invalid for 30 years at Bethesda, Jesus comes and what? Jesus comes and heals him. But on what day did Jesus do the healing? On the Sabbath day. And so they are just wigged out that Jesus would heal. And the rest of the narrative is Jesus comes and unpackages the law, and unpackages the heart of God for those that need his healing and his compassion. Take a look at the text with me. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on when? On the Sabbath. Now they took little boys, and on the eighth day, 
as the sign of God's covenant with the children of Israel, on the eighth day, they would take that little boy and circumcise him as a sign of God's blessing, as in a spiritual sense, as a, as a sign of God healing the nation from the power of sin and division that was caused by their waywardness. God gave them a sign, that sign of circumcision. And even if that, even if that day came for circumcision, fell on the Sabbath, what were they to do? They were to circumcise that baby, even if it fell on the Sabbath. Take a look at Jesus's depth of his understanding. Take a look at Jesus' heart. Take a look at the love that he has for broken people. The love that he has to heal and to set free. Look at the text with me, verse 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus is modeling for us a simple truth. Do you love people? Do you love people enough to go and reach them when it's socially or religiously unacceptable? See, there's a place in our heart where there's an attitude in our heart that's a religious attitude that keeps us from transformation. And it's simply this. Will we love people? Will we step out of our comfort zone? Will we be inconvenienced so that we can love people and care for them when the world or the culture says, oh, you can't do that. They're an immigrant. Oh, you can't do that. They're, 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 they're from the wrong side of town. No, you can't love that person. They're the, they're the wrong ethnic group. No, you can't love that person. You can't show that person love. See, Jesus steps out of the limitations of a religious culture because he loved that man. And he saw that man that had been an invalid for 38 years. You know, many Christians, myself included, you know, we've been more focused on sin management. Get to the end of the day. You know, I've not chewed. I've not smoked. I've not drank and I've not danced. I've not done any of those things. You know, that's a pharisaical spirit. That's a heart that has not experienced transformation because it's not dealt with the inner attitudes of the heart. When we look at Jesus' ministry, we're called to walk in his steps. What does he model for us? A reliance on the Father, a waiting on the Father, a reliance not in his own wisdom, but a reliance on the Father, a waiting for God to move, to open a door, rather than forcing something open. He demonstrates obedience, and he demonstrates a love for people. See, when you begin to deal with those issues in your heart, Am I really relying on God? Am I waiting on him? 
Do I find my identity in him, my purpose, my mission? Do I love people with all my heart to be inconvenienced, to step out of the cultural what's acceptable and reach out and touch someone's life? See, when we deal with those issues, then we experience his joy. We experience his peace because our heart, hear me now, our heart only finds its satisfaction, only finds its joy, only finds that peace as we're walking in the steps of Jesus like Peter admonished us to do. Can you say